but even if you should suffer, and it's the it uses an optative there. Okay. Greek class, we didn't spend a lot of time on optatives because they don't come up much. Twice in First Peter, sometimes not in a book at all. And it's like, it's kind of like the e- if, even if, even if perchance, perhaps you should suffer. He's trying to raise in their minds the idea that they should be asking the question. If, 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 if you should suffer for doing what is right, even if that should happen, you are blessed. So there's this kind of raising the bar for self-analysis to say, hmm, Peter doesn't think it's going to be very likely that I suffer for doing good. So I better make sure that if I'm suffering, it's really because I was doing good. I was following Christ. I was being true to Jesus. Welcome, my friend. This is the weekend edition of the Coaching for Pastors podcast. Hey, my friend, thanks for joining me this weekend. This is weekend edition number 40. And today we have Janine Brown. She's a PhD from Luther Seminary in the Twin Cities area. She's professor of New Testament, and she's the director of online programs at Bethel Seminary. She's the author of Scripture as Communication and three commentaries on Matthew's Gospel. So she's written extensively on the Gospel of Matthew and co-authored two interdisciplinary books, one called Becoming Whole and Holy, and the other one, Relational Integration Between Psychology and Christian Theology, which we did a great podcast episode with her some years ago. I believe it's episode 199 of the 200 Churches podcast. It was fascinating. The disciplines of psychology and theology and how they connect and overlap and intersect. And she's also a member of the Committee on Bible Translation for the New International Version. She's currently working on a commentary for the New International Commentary on the New Testament. She's working on 1 Peter. Today, I want you to hear about 20 minutes of my conversation with Janine for my other podcast, which has not released yet. So you're hearing it here first, just a conversation about 1 Peter and about her her work in 1 Peter and what it's like to be writing a commentary and her thoughts on some of the passages. And we just kind of jumped right into it at the beginning of this uh, a one-hour conversation. But you get to uh, just a sneak peek behind the scenes of somebody who's on the NIV translation team and has been for years, a Greek scholar, a New Testament scholar, an author and a professor, and how she processes translating and interpreting 1 Peter and beginning to write a commentary volume on that book. Janine's been on my 200 Churches podcast a number of times. I actually had her myself as a professor of Greek, New Testament Greek, uh, over 10 years ago now. 
and it was uh, just a delight to have her in there. I actually feel like I've developed more of a relationship with her since leaving the seminary and having her join uh, Johnny and I on the other side on the 200 Churches podcast a number of times. And then we've talked a number of times and done a few different things uh, together. And it's just it's just great to know somebody like her that has the depth and breadth of scholarship behind her and the original language of the New Testament. So here's my conversation with Janine Brown, just about a third of it. Here we go. Janine Brown, you truly are a friend of the show. If there's any such thing as the show, you're my friend, you're Johnny's friend, and you're joining us again. So welcome. Glad to be here. Love to be on your show. Well, I'm sure that I've already introduced you in the intro, but I do have to say that some of my fondest memories at Bethel are in your Greek class, along with, um, what was her, Liz, is it Liz Nixon? Lynn Nixon. Lynn, Lynn Nixon. Man, mm-hmm. I was so close. You were. I was so close. She's and taught she Greek for us, taught Greek for us for many years, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, and it was good for me at the time, at the stage in my life, it was good for me to sit and learn Greek from a woman professor. I needed that then, and it helped that you remind me of my kid sister. Oh wow, that's fun! <laughs> so you're learning Greek from your kid sister. Who knew, right? Hey, it's hey, it's uh, it it was good in my development and in my worldview. That was a very positive uh, opportunity, and uh, and and the fact that you're on the NIV translation team to know somebody on the NIV translation team was just, it was kind of exciting. And I've used the NIV since I was 30 years old. Hmm. And then the new 2011, you know, came out yeah. and that's already been 12 years now. It's so crazy. Right, right. And we're working on the revision. The NIV team has been a standing committee from its inception. So it's always revising. The assumption was revision always will need to happen. So who knows if not in the next 10 years, more something yeah the next one will come out there are still people still hanging on to their 1984s mm-hmm. yep that's not a bad thing either <laughs> I've got a lot of old bibles on my shelf yes yes well hey you've done a lot of work in first peter and i remember when i was in high school i spent one year in a christian high school and every month we had to we had to memorize a different passage, and we had to memorize the part of First Peter chapter three. Hmm. So early on, I got you know deep into at least one of the chapters, which kind of made First Peter you know familiar to me. Yeah. And uh, and you've written, have you finished your commentary no. on First Peter? I have started it. That's a good thing. I All started right. it, but not finished it. But I um, I have a couple of journal articles I published on First Peter a while ago. So I've done some publishing in the book, and now it's time to press into a commentary. So tell me, in terms of Greek, John being real easy and mm-hmm. simple and Hebrews being more complex, where does First Peter fall in? It's closer to Hebrews. Oh, really? Yeah, it is. It's not an easy book to translate. Hmm. Um, and I... It was the book that I learned Greek in my intermediate Greek class in seminary at Bethel Seminary under Tom Schreiner. And I started to teach it for Greek exegesis, the upper level Greek course, when I first started teaching in around 2000 or so. But it was really 
it's tougher Greek. So um, I moved to Paul more recently. I think you had Philippians. Maybe we went through Philippians. I think you're right. Yeah. I, that was because I was nice by that time in 2001. Because <laughs> Greek, yeah, the Greek of First Peter's, I, I like it. I mean, I, I uh, you know, it's I've waited through it enough times that I really enjoy reading through it. Um, but it is not the easiest. So, but it is the, the book that I first studied when I, um, besides John, when I learned Greek, once we got out of the beginning Greek class. So it, it's part of my journey, I have to say. When I was growing up, I, I remember First Peter in my home church, in my home context, to be a book that our church had great affinities with, or at least I felt like this book described our experience of small minority beleaguered group of Christians mm. in the 1970s. Yeah. I mean, and, and now I look back and go, hmm, that was an interesting way to have absorbed the messages of First Peter that I thought it really was all about us. We were well, just like those. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And and then I got to seminary and you know studied it. And it used it was a Greek class, so I was reading it, studying it there. And and frankly, um, I'm a singer songwriter. I mean, like I don't. Nobody can hear me out there on that. But I mean, I, I write music. I sit the piano. I write music. It's the way I kind of journal. I think. I think. I have two songs that are on First Peter. One from right about that time when I was studied in Greek. There was something about the letter itself that was very forming and that was spiritually informative, and the themes I heard developed over time. In other words, they were all there, but the ones that really spoke to me um, personally, spiritually, formatively, began to shift a bit as I moved from kind of the a little more "woe is me" kind of Christianity. I grew up in kind of an ER Christianity, I would say. Okay. Woe is us. You know, yeah. um, to a little more of the the emphasis on hope and also the emphasis on really thinking about why we might say we are suffering. Is the suffering really for being a Christian? Um, I have to say that sometimes I see Christians act and I think you might be suffering just because you're a kind of a jerk. Can I say that? You know, I mean, there are times when you, you wonder if, if their persecution yeah. is coming because they're acting in, you know, for, for Christ they're, um, or, or they're just they bring it on themselves. being very yeah. socially aware or might just say something to be kind of rude. Like, huh? Because hmm. I think the, um, I think Peter in the letter helps us to avoid asks Numbers of times, kind of asks for a check-in. It says, make sure it's not for doing evil that you suffer. If you really, really yeah. were to suffer for doing good, you know, he kind of raises the question mark at a number of points that I mm. think presses the readership into self-evaluation. Circumspectly thinking through what it might look like to be a Christian in this context and whether suffering is really an inevitable end and the 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 the, uh, the impact of that kind of question asking or raising the possibility they could suffer for doing evil not for doing good is this sort of reflective stance self-reflective stance toward one's world the people around you the situations that are happening that i think still is a valuable reflective exercise today. So I've come from this place of, yes, that talks about us, to, hmm, I think we should think whether, think deeply about whether it talks about us, that this is, a, is this applicable? 
because I do, uh, people around the world suffer for being a Christian. I have no problem affirming that truth and reality. And I think Peter asks us to ask the question and yeah. not just assume. Well, and I think in, is it the NIV or the King James? I don't remember that, <laughs> that starts in, I think, somewhere in chapter three. But, and if you suffer yes. for righteousness sake, yeah. right? In other words, so you may suffer, but it, but it's not always for righteousness sake. But if it is, yes. then you're blessed. And in, yeah, chapter two, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is to slaves, household slaves. How is it your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and doing it? I mean, th- there are all some kind of really tricky issues just to navigate yes. there in terms of slaves yes. and the power that they don't have. But then in chapter three, he broadens to the whole community, 313, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer, and it's the, he uses an optative there. Okay. Greek class, we didn't spend a lot of time on optatives because they don't come up much. Twice in First Peter, sometimes not in a book at all. And it's like, it's kind of like the if, even if, even if perchance, perhaps you should suffer. He's trying to raise in their minds the idea that they should be asking the question. If, 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 if you should suffer for doing what is right, even if that should happen, you are blessed. So there's this kind of raising the bar for self-analysis to say, hmm, Peter doesn't think it's going to be very likely that I suffer for doing good. So I better make sure that if I'm suffering, it's really because I was doing good. I was following Christ. I was being true to Jesus. He says then, being, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as the only Lord. And if that's the reason somebody gives you a hard time, then so be it. Anything else? Off the table. You know, don't be adding all sorts of other things to that Christ as Lord. That is the piece. If somebody's offended because you say Christ is my Lord and you act in ways that show Christ is your single and only Lord, then suffering, if it comes, you're blessed. What chapter and verse is that now? 315. It's kind of the heart of the whole thing. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. So let's just jump. Let's jump way out of order now for a second. You just quoted a verse that's often quoted in Mm -hmm. Christian context. Is that verse often quoted in relatively good context, or is it really kind of taken out of context and the context sheds a really interesting meaning to it? Being ready to give an answer. It's used as the apologetic verse, right? I mean, and that's not a bad usage. I think the framing does help us here. Uh, here are some particular things to ground it in. For the hope that you have, or the um, it's the hope and who men, it's the hope among you. I like to think of it as our common hope. We often think in you, you know, kind of as a singular, this is a plural. It's, it's your Christian hope. It's, it's the, the hope of the community. Not that you don't have it yourself, but it, it is this shared yeah. help. And I like to co- translate it kind of as, as your common hope. Because it puts it all, you know, this is not the single evangelist, which isn't a bad thing, but it is the 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 community that is ready to give an answer to for the hope that they share. It's a hope we share together. I think that enriches it. It doesn't, you know, shift it dramatically. But then the... Um, 
do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So gentle, respectful. I mean, that's got that's that's where he lands. I mean, he both answers are important, but they're they're together the answer of do this in a respectful way, in a gentle way, a way that is as I mean I think tolerant as possible. You know, I mean tolerance is 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 a negative word in many contexts, but I just think there's something about do it in a way that is seeking not to offend. Don't seek to offend. Give an answer in a way that is winsome, is thoughtful, is sensitive to the person you're talking to. So all of that I think helps to hear it. And to note that this is the first time in the entire letter where explicitly they're told they can give a word of witness, if you want to put it that way. Witness okay. becomes explicit here for the first time. Hmm. That's a long time to wait. Yeah. Yeah. He would does, you say would you say that <clears throat> would you say that, that uh would lead us to lean toward Irenic in our approach to people versus the polemic, which is kind of our cultural approach yeah. to communication often? Yeah. I, I Irenic is a a value of Bethel, you might know that. I mean, if people use language, ironic, I mean, this ironic spirit, this gentle, thoughtful, reflective way of being with other people. And um, ironic, now I didn't learn that word. I mean, I learned it way, way back in Greek yeah. and I'd forgotten it. But yeah. define it just for a second, just explain what that is. Yeah, I mean, we use it, it's part of Bethel's heritage. This ironic spirit is part of kind of our mission or our, our th- uh, thinking about who we are to be, you know, so I'm finding it in that context. And it is this, this sense of um, gentle answer, peaceable, um, uh, caring about how it comes across, not just that the answer is right, but that it comes across in a winsome way, in a way that is wanting to build dialogue rather than shout answers. Now, you're a Greek prof. Janine, I tossed you a softball. Well, Irenaeus piece, yes. There you go. <laughs> yes, but I mean, you know, you. I also taught you that etymology is not the most important thing in the world necessarily either. So, <laughs> but yes, well, in that case, it is a good is a good indicator of what the word means. Yeah. Well, the name Irene, people mm-hmm. would know the name Irene in Irene in Greek, yes, right? Means peace. means peace. Yes, it's a good so word. that's that's helpful. Now, the other word, polemic, talk about the nature of that word, the origin, maybe the meaning. No, I haven't thought about the, um, the etymology. You tell me. I, I'm asking, I'm asking. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I, just, I mean, know. I think the I way it's know. used now is, is, uh, certainly, um, to kind of, it, it kind of puts up walls. Wouldn't hear the, the polemic. It's the argument. It's meant generically as an argument, but it's come to have a, a strong negative connotation. Almost pugilistic. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. Wow, that's quite a word. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this, 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 how we are as Christians is important to the letter of First Peter. Is important to the author. Um, an interesting piece is that while this is the first sort of outward missional word that's mentioned, a witness as a verbal witness. Um, wives in the household code of First Peter three verse one are called to submit to their husbands and particularly their unbelieving husbands so that if anyone, any of them do not believe the word, they might be won over without words by the behavior Mm. of their wives. So wives are kind of, 
don't know if they're expressly forbidden, but they're pressed toward their behavior of submission because for them to say to their husbands, come to my God, come worship Jesus and not your gods is a very countercultural thing in that context. Mm. Um, uh, Plutarch in his advice to bride and groom says, now wives, you are to take your friends from the friends of your husbands, Hmm. not your own. Um, And first among these is the gods. In other words, you are to follow his gods. That's the way you go when you get married. You go toward the gods of your husband and the husband's family and the household and the ancestry. You bring your own God with you? No. So for him to say, submit yourselves to your own husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be one. Uh, what? They may be won over to Jesus, to your God. I mean, he's saying something so countercultural. And he says, well, I'm doing without words. <laughs> Just better mm. to let your behavior show that this Jesus is worth following. Because man, you don't, you know, it's you're on really tricky territory. Um, and we can tell it's tricky territory because in verse six, he he likens them. He says, you could be like Sarah in this regard, who obeyed Abraham, called him Lord. You are Sarah's daughters if you do what is right and do not fear any intimidation. He uses strong language there, both the verb for fear, usually phobia, but also another word that's just an intense kind of intimidation. And who are they going to be intimidated by? Unbelieving husbands who say, no, you don't get to go to that um, meeting of those Christians. And Christians in chapter four is used only three times in the New Testament is where Christians show up. And it's chapter four, it's clearly a derogatory term. I mean, you know, it, it comes derogatorily into the mix. And Peter says, don't be ashamed to be called one of those. Thank you, Janine Brown, for having that conversation with me. In a week or two, this is going to release on the 200 Churches podcast, the full conversation. And I totally enjoyed it. And we got into talking about suffering and how. There's this, uh, there's kind of a, a shadow side, a dark side sometimes to church culture uh, when it comes to interpreting scripture. And this dark side says that we're under attack. We should be on top. We have to fight. We have to fight for our rights. We have to stand up. We're suffering for Jesus. And she really gets into talking about that, doesn't she? And and in First Peter, where it talks a lot about suffering, there are some qualifications there. There's some qualifiers. You could suffer because you're just an idiot, or you could actually suffer for the name of Jesus, being because you've been doing good and you're being persecuted for it. But there, there is biblical teaching, and then there's just this cultural mythology And I think as pastors, we have to really work at not perpetuating religious myths in our churches. Because you know this, Pastor, you'll have your own church people come up to you and they'll just they'll just repeat something. And it'll be just some and I I can't here's one. Just the other day, I had somebody in my office and their life is not turning out the way it should. And they feel like they've asked God and asked God, and he's not giving them what they're asking for. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing, uh, what they're asking for. But, but they said, I don't think I have enough faith. 
That that's one of those cultural myths that has very little uh, rootedness in actual scriptural teaching. And I think, Pastor, that you and I we have to we have to fight against that. We have to teach what the Bible says, what the scriptures say on these different topics. And so this person and I, we discuss that. And I use the term myth, and I use the term old wives' tale, and I use the term the cultural Christian teaching that's not biblical Christian teaching, when in fact it's got very little to do with your faith. Number one, that was not at all the reason why their life has turned out the way it is, the the reason being that they didn't have enough faith in their prayers. The reason is that if they've lived out the book of Proverbs, they've made some really poor choices, and they're living with the consequences of those poor choices. Poor choice after poor choice. You repeat that enough times, over enough time, it's going to get you. It's going to bite you in the butt, and it's doing that. So I enjoyed talking with Jeanine about what you know. What does the Bible actually say? And there are certain passages that we just kind of cherry pick and we teach uh, a certain way all the time. And when in reality, when we get into the context of a book or a chapter, usually I like to say you've got to look at the chapter, but then you've got to look at the whole book, and especially in the New Testament. You've got to look at the whole letter. And with Paul... You've got to look at all of his writings, not just even the chapter or the book, but you've got to compare his writings in this letter with his writings in other letters, sometimes for the purpose of saying you can't compare them, and other times for the purpose of saying you have to compare them. So it's just, it's not just cut and dry. It's not cut and dry. And I like talking with somebody like Janine because she sees those intricacies, and she's got the type of a mind that she dwells on those intricacies and on the the academic side of it so that she can get the theology close to right, as close as any of us are going to get. Well, that's enough of my blabbing, Pastor. Uh, You've got a message this weekend uh, to prepare for and to deliver. You've got a teaching. uh, You've got a talk, whatever it is that you call it. You're going to try to communicate truth to people this weekend. And my prayer is that you do a really, really good job at it on your side and that the Holy Spirit empowers his word to make a deep difference in the lives of your people on his side. And we get to partner with him to do that. But we always, don't we, we always want the Holy Spirit to partner with us, to be there with us and to take the word that we share and do something in people's hearts. Have a great time this weekend, Pastor. It's good to be with you, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Coaching for Pastors podcast. Mm -hmm.